Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're here doing another show at the National Tribal Health Conference. This is that conference that uh, you've been hearing about if you're a regular listener to the show. It's another program put on by the National Indian Health Board, and they have brought together people from across Indian country to this exciting venue, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where we're really hearing all kinds of exciting things right here, even in the exhibit hall at the American Indian Living radio and magazine booth. And this show is going to be no exception, I know, because across from me is Naveen Kathuria. Naveen, am I pronouncing that last name right? Correct. Yes, that's right. You are doing some interesting work, and I know you got a heart for Indian country because this is not the first time we've crossed paths. Yeah, I've been to several conferences now, and I really enjoy it, really learning, learning more. Uh, so I've been coming for the past couple of years. You represent a group called Regroup. In fact, you have a, a booth here at the exhibit uh, area as well, correct? Correct, yes. Some folks who've been to meetings like this, they have gotten familiar with Regroup. They're maybe dialoguing already with you. Maybe they're using your services. But others are saying, well, I mean, Regroup, I mean, it sounds intriguing, but tells me nothing about what this guy does. So tell us a little bit about Regroup. Absolutely. So we're a behavioral telemedicine organization. So we are delivering services like telepsychiatry and teletherapy uh, to organizations across the country to help them improve access to behavioral health providers via telemedicine. So that'd be virtual, like think Skype for healthcare. Okay. So I know I'm in a rural health clinic right now, and we don't have that full range of specialty services. So when someone needs to see the endocrinologist, that hormone specialist, or they need to see that subspecialist in maybe rheumatology or some discipline, they go into a special room. It's got a large screen. There's a nurse in there if there needs to be some uh, biological monitoring. A stethoscope needs to be put on a chest. We're talking about that kind of environment. Am, am I right? Yeah, absolutely. Um there may be someone taking vitals, but mm -hmm. other than that, uh, someone would likely, most of the time, be going into a, a designated room uh, and engaging in a visit with a provider who's elsewhere. Uh, but they would be walked into a room, clicked into the visit by potentially some administrative staff or a nurse mm -hmm. uh, or whoever's taking their vitals. Uh, and then they're retrieved once the visit's over. So very similar to if you or I were to go into a primary care clinic and we were to be walked back into a room and then the clinician were to come in with the one difference, the one obvious difference being that you would be engaging in this visit virtually. Mm -hmm. So for some people, no big deal in this age of modern technology. We do so much with our phones, with tablets, with computers, and some people don't bat an eye when we talk about a virtual visit, you know, a telemedicine visit. I have other patients and they say, you know, that's really weird. I don't know that I feel comfortable doing that. What kind of feedback are you getting as you work with tribes especially? I know that's one of your kind of target audiences because so many have rural and access to care issues. What are you hearing in the Indian country community? 
Uh, it's been really positive feedback in the Indian country community. I think a few things. Uh, number one, we train all of our providers on engaging in telemedicine visit versus in-person. So establishing a rapport, uh, mm. talking about their surroundings, so developing a relationship with the patient, as well as delivering therapeutic services. And so they know how to engage with the patient. Uh, number two, of course, with telemedicine, you can draw from a larger geographical scope, so not mm-hmm. just a, a clinician who's within a few miles of the reservation or, or maybe maybe more, maybe 15, 20. And so the quality part of things is, is really uh, something that resonates with, uh, with Indian country when we're working with, uh, with reservations and tribes. Um, and then the ability to have specialized services. Hmm. So we have adult psychiatrists, child and adolescent psychiatrists, mm. psychiatrists who specialize in substance abuse. Same with therapists. And okay. so we can get very specific with the needs of an organization versus if they're drawing from, again, that smaller radius of folks that are willing to come on site. Uh, where they wouldn't be able to do that, they'd really have to really select whoever is available. So let me try to see how this works. Let's say I'm maybe in a small tribe. We have a a single tribal health clinic, and we're recognizing we do have a lot of mental health needs in our population. Perhaps we've been using maybe some local providers. They're not maybe in our tribal health clinic. Maybe we're sending them into some community. Maybe there's some uh, difficulty with where that nearest community is. And I hear about regroup now on this show or maybe here at this uh, conference. What does the process look like? I mean, how difficult is it for maybe a small clinic that is not doing any telemedicine to get up to speed and offer services like this? It's pretty simple because the way that we work, at least at regroup, we're trying to mimic the workflows and the and the processes and really develop our service around the resources that are available at the clinic. And so our our whole team is focused on what's available, what are your needs, and how can we meet those needs in a way that's consistent with how you already deliver services. So our provider is charting within the local electronic health records. They're training with the on-the-ground care team. Mm. They're really adapting to whatever, however the care delivery model is currently. So in terms of prescribing methods, making sure that it's consistent with the holistic medicine practices that are existent within the tribal clinic, mm-hmm. um, we want to make sure we find the appropriate match. And so uh, one of the things that's really important about the way that we deliver the services is it's not like some staffing model where we throw a virtual body at you. We're actually finding someone that the tribe that we're working with interviews and ensures that mm. the, they're culturally sensitive and that they are their prescribing practices and their clinical practices are consistent with what is, is currently uh, being delivered at the clinic. And so we're really focused on finding the appropriate clinical match, and that's why it's easier for them to, to sort of adapt to having this virtual provider because it's as close to in-person care as possible. It's as integrated and as coordinated as possible. I mean, I really like this because, of course, one of the concerns is with telemedicine services, you think you're contracting with some large impersonal group and... Well, I mean, if it's not provider A, it's going to be provider B or provider C. But you're actually looking for specific providers to be a fit in specific contexts. And really, if I come in and see a certain provider 
in a telemedicine visit, I'm going to expect to see that same provider the next week I'm in or the next month or whenever. Is that right? That's exactly right. So continuity of care is really important to us. Mm -hmm. So if we find what I mentioned before, a clinical match, that'll be the same provider that the patient's seeing week in and week out. And if you, you mentioned a small clinic, I mm -hmm. think that's a really important point to note. We're working with some clinics where they need one day a week of services. Okay. So we're not committing them to long or large blocks of time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, they don't need to commit to a full-time provider or even half, you know, 20 hours a week. They can start with as little as a day a week and sometimes even less. And so they can really make sure that they're meeting their needs mm -hmm. in an appropriate manner mm -hmm. versus committing to a, a larger block of time when they, that, that's not what they anticipate the need will be. And then they, they can, of course, scale up. So that flexibility uh, we think is important um, because, like you said, some might be skeptical about the delivery of these services. So we don't want to commit them to something um, if they're not bought into it, but we're confident that they will um, over time. Now, this is such an interesting model to me at the juncture we're at. I'm practicing part-time in a rural area of California, and there's an interesting dynamic there. It's hard to get physicians to move to those areas and stay there. And the kind of feedback, I was speaking with some other physicians who are in some other rural practices in California, they say, we're having the same problem. And maybe it's the family, maybe it's a spouse. They want to be around those amenities that maybe they got used to training in the big cities. So these rural practices, whether it's in Indian country, whether it's elsewhere, uh, having challenges with attracting providers. And even when you think you've got a fit, you know, if a tribe says we do need a full-time psychiatrist or mental health professional or some other professional, they may get that person on board. And after a year, they say, you know, uh, you know, my family just can't handle it here. And, and they're gone after you've invested. So it seems like one of the things that you offer, you really say, look, we'll find a fit for you. And this person isn't going to leave because the community's not a fit with them because they live, you know, 50 miles away or a hundred miles away. Is it possible they live a thousand miles away? It's possible. Uh -huh. Certainly with, with an Indian country, um, within these organizations, sometimes the rules would allow for the provider to be licensed in any state in the United States mm -hmm. under the Federal Tort Claims Act um, versus uh, being licensed in the state where they're delivering care. Mm -hmm. uh, and some clinicians are licensed in multiple states. So it right. is possible they're far away, as many as a 1,000 miles away or, or more. Wow. Now, we've been hearing some interesting things about regroup, and we, we want to talk more about behavioral medicine and why that's so important today. But before we do, I think a lot of people are saying, well, who is this guy anyway, Naveen? And how does uh, someone go about getting into a, a business like this? You actually have an impressive title on your card. It says you're the Senior Vice President for Partnerships and Compliance. <laughs> yeah, that just indicates I've done a lot of different things throughout my career. So tell and us. So we're, we're a number of different hats now. Uh -huh. uh, so I grew up in, uh, in Michigan. Okay. Uh, and uh, went to University of Michigan for college, mm -hmm. uh, then went to Boston University, so moved to the East Coast uh, for law school, uh, then moved to New York, uh, the Big Apple, okay. um, to practice law, uh, moved back to, sh or to the Midwest, to Chicago, to practice some more, and then decided I really wanted to get more involved sort of at, uh, at the earlier stages, so um, 
became an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. um, started some wellness clinics within mm. Illinois to help with the obesity epidemic, uh-huh. um, and also did some consulting. So consulting for not-for-profit hospitals across uh-huh. the country. Okay. Uh, and so have had a background in healthcare for a long time. Uh-huh. And one of the things that was very apparent was uh, that behavioral health uh, access was lacking. Uh, there's a stigma attached, and it really affects so many other areas like diabetes no and question. Uh, obesity. And so I saw that from the earlier stages when I was starting this wellness clinic that so much of this was treating behavioral health mm-hmm. to allow someone to be motivated enough to be eating healthy and exercising and things like that. And so it kind of all came together with Regroup where I joined an earlier stage organization uh, and really had the ability to impact at large communities that lack access and improve their health and uh, deal with some of the comorbidities like diabetes, mm-hmm. like high blood pressure. And so if you can treat, it's a, it's a preventative medicine focus where if you can treat behavioral health, you can help with a lot of other issues that uh, individuals are dealing with and improve their overall health. Even though our show, American Indian Living, of course, is especially targeting a First Nations population, The show goes out in 170 stations. There's lots of people who are not Native who listen. And uh, many people I know, I've met over the years, who are health professionals. They listen to the show. They're not working in a tribal health center. They're not working in a a Native-owned clinic. They may be listening to this dialogue and saying, wow, this is a great thing. I wish there was something available for our small clinic. But it sounds like Regroup just works with Native populations. Is that the case? No, uh, I focus a lot uh, on working um, in Indian country. However, uh, we work uh, with primary care clinics, health systems and hospitals, substance abuse clinics, uh, post-acute care clinics, really anywhere where there's a lack of access to high-quality behavioral health clinicians. Mm. We want to help. Um, that's mm-hmm. our we're we're mission based and, and our mission is to improve access and so uh, wherever we can we will and we have this large network uh, to be able to allow organizations to have access to so um, it, it's not specific um, to one quote unquote segment it's really okay. anywhere that, where there's a lack of access so federally qualified health centers critical access hospitals uh-huh. like a lot of rural areas but also urban areas because the behavioral health access issues are not specific to one area it's really across the country no, that's a good There's point. just a lack of access so really we're getting a message here that wherever you're at if you're frustrated as an individual with your inability to access uh, mental health services if maybe you feel there's a stigma approaching someone at the tribal health clinic because they know you the mental health provider is your uh, you know, high school, eighth grade teacher or something. Um, There are other options out there. We're going to talk more with uh, Naveen Kathuria. We're coming back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living, looking at behavioral health and some exciting strategies for you. We do have to step away just for a couple of minutes. Don't go away. I'm Dr. DeRose. We will be right back. Today's broadcast has been prerecorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked and you can treat it if it is too high. 
So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose for American Indian Living. We're continuing our dialogues here at the National Tribal Health Conference in Oklahoma City. Naveen Kathuria is still sitting across from me. Naveen, I'm glad that even though you've got a booth and an important presence here, you've been able to stick by for a while. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You have a fascinating background. I didn't fully realize this when we talked about lining up the show. Maybe you had told me, but it didn't resonate like our dialogue here has, because I'm very interested in this interface between mental health and chronic diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, obesity you mentioned. Just by way of background, some of the folks who are here at this uh, National Indian Health Board-sponsored uh, venue actually heard me speak and a colleague of mine speak, Dr. Neil Nedley, at the last NIHB-sponsored conference in Washington, D.C. Dr. Nedley gave one of the keynote presentations on nutrition and the brain and then uh, conducted a workshop that, you know, related to depression and, and lifestyle interventions. I presented a, uh, a workshop at that same conference speaking about diabetes, high blood pressure, and mental health, and the interface between these diagnoses. Why it's so significant to me is it seems just like you shared in your experience, and I'm, I'm interested to hear more about it, but leading leading up to this, giving you a little bit more about my background, you know, I find so many people, they say, we really want to make a difference with diabetes. We really want to make a difference with high blood pressure. Uh, for example, we've got a book out. We give it away free to people in Indian country. If they want to use it in their educational efforts, it's called 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. So we're speaking about lifestyle practices that can help people naturally lower their blood pressure. But at the end of the day, a lot of individuals may know 
what they should do, but they're not doing it. And part of what gets in the way is some of these mental health issues. Now, I think you got an interesting story to tell. I'm just reading between the lines because you worked in these wellness clinics. You were working with people who had these uh, issues. T- tell me how that kind of materialized, that connection with mental health in that environment. Yeah, sure. So, so these medical wellness clinics were really focused on obesity mm-hmm. and, and even more so on insulin resistance. Oh, okay. So the thesis was if you can stop the yo-yo effect and stop uh, people from eating high glycemic index foods, that that will then allow them to lose weight in a sustainable manner. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was medical, so we had uh, doctors on mm-hmm. staff. And there was the ability to prescribe, uh, but we really weren't focused on that. We were really focused on long-term care. Mm-hmm. And what we realized during it was just what you said. Um, folks really wanted, they knew what they needed to do, mm-hmm. but they needed to come in to have someone sort of reestablish that confidence within them that they could do it mm-hmm. and talk to them about how, if they were losing weight, how they could keep it off and giving sort of motivational sort of speeches to them on how to continue that. Uh, and so what we, I mean, what I really realized, and this is again coming full circle to where I'm at now, was that the behavioral health components were so important to have achieved sustainable wellness or sustainable results in terms of weight loss, in terms mm-hmm. of health, in terms of just overall wellness. Uh, and so that's where I've really started to realize because going in, I don't know that I knew that. I don't know mm-hmm. that I thought, I thought, you know, if we give someone a piece of paper, a static document that tells uh-huh. them, here's what you need to do, here's when you need to do it, even meal planning to the effect of every meal, here's what you need to eat, that they would say, okay, I can just do this. But what I quickly realized is folks can't necessarily, or a lot of folks can't just do that. And there's studies out there that show that um, it's for the comorbidities and the chronic diseases, mm-hmm. uh, folks that have mental health issues along with diabetes are three times as costly as those that aren't suffering from mental health issues. So again, it all resonates that you have to treat the brain before you can treat the body because the brain can help to treat the body. So that's sort of what I realized in that wellness venture, which um, we did that for, for nine plus years. Well, I mean, it's a powerful message. And one of the videos that we also give out for free, we've got a small grant that's allowing us to give out these resources. We call it the Brain Health Revolution. And we actually look at the flip side of it, and that is, how those same lifestyle practices that can help with diabetes and high blood pressure can also help the brain work better. And that's a lot what uh, Dr. Nedley was speaking about there in, uh, in D.C. at that National uh, Indian Health Board-sponsored uh, event. So we've got this uh, interesting relationship. They sometimes in medical circles say these bi-directional relationships where the mental health influences the diabetes and the high blood pressure, the diabetes and the high blood pressure, the medications that are used, they affect the mental health. And we're saying, look, the strategies that we need to use are, are multidisciplinary, and one of them involves that behavioral health component. So I'm trying to come back to regroup, and I'm, we're kind of regrouping, if you will, to, you know, <laughs> to not do too much of a play on words here, but I'm really trying to get back to your company because I'm interested with what you did in those wellness clinics. Did you find it was difficult for you to get mental health providers to, to help in that venue? Is that what started to awaken your need for having mental health resources that may not even be local? Yeah, absolutely. What we found was that um, our, we had primary care physicians at these clinics, and we found that they 
much of the time we're being asked to deliver therapeutic services, mm-hmm. behavioral health services. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't about giving, again, a plan or prescribing medications. Uh, it was really about motivating these individuals and learning more about what spurred them to crave certain foods that they wouldn't normally eat or what caused them to sort of quote unquote relapse into sort of eating these, eating these things that they wouldn't normally eat. And so, uh, it's about constant sort of reassurances and, and really establishing that cadence where someone has a resource. And so we realized, uh, you know, a little bit into it that that was something that wasn't available for them and that they needed. Um, and, you know, with the stigma attached, it wasn't something that they weren't, ne- were necessarily asking for, but what we realized was what, it was something that they needed. One of the things I found interesting that relates to this dialogue is in the addiction community, they'll often talk about those high-risk situations for lapsing or relapsing, and they'll use a, a, a mnemonic or an acronym called HALT, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And you think about those two central ones, angry and lonely, and even if you don't uh, put hungry and tired under the mental health umbrella, Definitely, when you're speaking about anger and loneliness, you're highlighting, I mean, some of these very, uh, very deep-rooted mental health issues that really, like you said, are at the root of, of many of these problems. And so we're kind of bringing this back full circle, and that's what you're doing as an organization with Regroup. You're saying, well, let's get these services where they're needed by providing them through telehealth. Now, I'm going to just ask you some simple questions. Just I'm thinking of not only my listeners but myself. I'm thinking of the venue where I work. We do have mental health services available locally, but it seems like, I'll be honest with you, you know, I'll refer a patient to mental health services, and unless I say there's some urgent need, I mean, maybe several months before they can get in to see someone. With regroup, theoretically, if my clinic said, you know, this is a fit for what we're doing, or we could find a provider or some providers that are a fit, we could theoretically be seeing these people much quicker, right? Absolutely. And um, and there's a number of ways. And we talked about interdisciplinary approach to medicine. I mean, one of the things that we're doing uh, in Indian country as well is, is integrating behavioral health within a primary care setting. Hmm. And so you could then potentially refer a patient in real time to get a visit. Uh, but if not that, then very soon thereafter. Mm-hmm. And when you think about a patient developing a trust with their provider, usually it's with their primary care physician. That's someone that they're establishing a relationship with over time. And so if you can integrate behavioral health within that setting, uh, it becomes a lot more effective. And then also the stigma attached with it. Now they can be going into a clinic where they receive their general primary care mm-hmm. and receiving a behavioral health visit. So if they're, they associate a stigma with going into a behavioral health clinic, well, now they're not. They're, they're going into a primary care clinic. So uh-huh. that can help in a lot of ways as well. The other thing I really liked about what you said, I've liked a lot of things, by the way. Thank you. But, uh, but I, I like this aspect where uh, you know we're talking, and I think this was actually off air, we're talking about this match between clinics and providers. Um, You know, many times I'm working with a a population. It's not a primarily native population right now, at least as far as my clinical practice, but um, it's it's an indigent population. And I've never worked in a concentrated way in that environment. And what's shocked me 
is how many health professionals, various areas, don't treat people with respect if they don't have the kind of means that they have. It's been kind of uh, kind of surprising, actually, to see that. You, when you're finding a fit with a clinic, you're looking at all these things that often, maybe not on the radar screen, if someone's just hiring a provider. Yeah, absolutely. I think I always talk about it um, in terms of being a mutual match. And so uh, I think I mentioned this before, not throwing, quote, unquote, a virtual body at an organization and saying they meet the criteria that you mentioned in terms of, uh, again, on a piece of paper, they're an adult psychiatrist, they have a level of experience, they, and uh, and that's it. We really look at, okay, what is the what are the needs of your patient population? And then we will submit that to our provider network to allow for a, a better match that they can improve that. Naveen, you are just a wealth of information. I don't know. Would it be imposing on you too much to stay by for another segment? Sure, no problem. Okay, we are going to step away. We've got to do that. But we're going to come back with more from the National Tribal Health Conference. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Don't go away. Our next half of the show is coming up right after this. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call one 800 775 hope that's 1-800-775-4673 so you want to be a hero here are some ways to get the job hunt down that killer shark or run into a burning house to save a kitten luckily there's an easier way to become a hero call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking walking or seeing stroke know the signs act in time you'll be a real hero a message from the national institute of neurological disorders and stroke can you guess what's going on here it's kids getting fit studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity heart disease anxiety and increase their overall mood so whether it's around your neighborhood or at school just get out and play For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute, since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 
1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're in the second half of today's edition of the show, and I'm sitting across from another professional, actually a lawyer, Naveen Kathuria. He is the Senior Vice President for Partnerships and Compliance with Regroup. And I've uh, enjoyed our dialogue. You've been sharing many insightful things. And, you know, Naveen, I'm going to be honest with you. I think, as we've been talking, there's a danger when it comes to telemedicine. Why is that? I think what the danger is, is so many people can think, hey, we can do this. Just get a clinician, sit him behind a, a camera, and bring a patient in somewhere else in the world, sit them behind a camera, and hey, we've got this virtual visit. But as I've been listening to you, you folks have been doing this for a while, and you realize, especially when it comes to mental health services, you've got to develop rapport. You said something very interesting earlier in the show about how you, or your team at least, trains providers to talk about their environment and different things, to, to build this kind of rapport that you'd normally think is, is distancing when you're looking at a computer screen to actually make for a warmer relationship. I'm just fascinated by this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's really important to understand that there, there is a bit of a difference between delivering care virtually and in person. And, and to overcome that difference, uh, we have a medical director who's a psychiatrist who's delivering care and has been delivering uh, tele, telemedicine care for uh, several years now. He's really working on interviewing our clinicians, making sure they're appropriate for this type of service, and then training them on what type of questions need to be asked up front to, again, establish that rapport, that relationship with the patient uh, to give them comfort, to confide, uh, because in behavioral health, it's really important. Uh, that's why we're so focused on continuity of care is that we really want the patient to feel comfortable and then to get into some of the deep-rooted issues that they may have. Um, we don't think that's possible if you're dealing with a different clinician every week. And mm. so that's why we're really focused on this continuity of care model. Um, and, and at the center of that, at the fulcrum point of that, is our medical director. We have a chief clinical officer who is a licensed clinical social worker. We have a whole team that's really experienced in delivery of telehealth services, medical services. A lot of times when people are trying to assess other team members, one of the things they look at is experience. Someone's trying to evaluate whether regroup is the right option for them. Of course, you've got people with experience prior to coming to your organization, but how big a network do you have at this point? I know it's a growing operation. If I were to call you, for example, here's the practical question why I'm asking. If I were to call, am I going to expect somebody be scrambling to say, oh, another provider, I mean, where are we going to find someone like this? Give yeah. us a little picture of, of where you guys are at organizationally. Sure. Uh, we're delivering services in about 20 states right now. We have a network of over, at this point, I believe it's 4,000 clinicians. 4,000 clinicians? Across the country. So that wow. includes the full spectrum. So like licensed clinical social workers, psychologists, psychiatric nurse practitioners, and psychiatrists. Uh, and so we have this large network that we draw from uh, generally. And the other question you want to ask when you talk about scrambling um, for clinicians to, to find that are a match. And again, I mentioned the mutual match. Right, right. Uh, generally within several weeks, so within a few weeks, we'll find a clinical match. So wow. what that means is 
we find the clinician that they're asking for mm-hmm. based on licensure experience. We su- submit the clinician to the organization. They then have an opportunity to interview them and ensure that um, they are a cultural fit. We think that's really important in Indian country. Uh, and then they give it a thumbs up. Mm-hmm. If they don't like that clinician, we'll find another. We'll, we'll submit another mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. But either way, that whole process uh, is generally just a few weeks um, to find that to find that mutual match. Wow. So. From the point of my hearing about regroup, saying I need telemedicine in my clinic to better deliver mental health services, what kind of a timeline is realistic? Are we talking three months, six months, a year before we have something up and running? So generally, it's between 60 and 120 days Okay. from when we agree on something when we sign a contract so to speak and then um and when the go live date is so Mm -hmm. and that includes uh many of uh the entities we work with need to credential this provider Mm -hmm. with uh the payers so medicaid medicare private pay whatever it may be um and so that includes that okay we say 60 120 days inclusive of that credentialing so that's why it only takes a few weeks for us to find the clinical match but then Uh they need to get credentialed that usually takes 60 to 90 days so if we're on this trajectory, we're moving in the direction, what kind of an investment is it? I mean, if I've got nothing in my clinic for telemedicine, and that's not our clinic. We, we, you know, we do have those facilities. But if someone has nothing and they're saying this scenario that you mentioned earlier, like one day a week, if they're looking at their, their clinic budget, I mean, what kind of uh, expenses are we talking? So... A common misconception is that equipment will cost a lot. It doesn't. Generally, a lot of the entities we work with, actually, uh, they can leverage a laptop computer that they already own uh, if it's less than five years old mm-hmm. uh, because if it has a built-in webcam. It has the audio component. Um, the real challenge sometimes, in Indian country at least, is, is bandwidth. And uh, even that, we have, I mean, I don't, I'm not a tech person, so I don't know the exact bandwidth requirements, but they're pretty low because we work with a lot of uh, a lot of entities that are in rural areas that don't have extremely high sort of internet connectivity, mm-hmm. um, and it'll still work out fine. So okay. from an equipment standpoint, not a large cost. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't charge an upfront deployment fee. A lot of organizations will quote a rate for a provider mm-hmm. and then have a separate like deployment fee upfront. We don't have that. So really, they're only paying for the services that they're receiving really uh so it's really not a it's not an upfront investment uh-huh. as much as just a commitment to to wanting to deliver these services um and finding the appropriate clinical match and things like that so if i say we need more mental health services we develop a relationship with regroup and you say okay we found this clinical match maybe it's a licensed clinical social worker maybe it's a psychiatrist whatever the need is maybe it's several people and uh, I find that the providers in the clinic are not referring, and we've got someone, quote, dedicated to our clinic, but that person's not being utilized. The clinic isn't shelling out any money at all? Uh, well, sorry, I should correct that. So when we talk about, like, a day a week, they're mm-hmm. paying for that provider time. So it's not subject to how often the provider's utilized, which is why we allow that flexibility in terms of whether they want eight hours a week or more. Um, but they're paying for that block of time. And the reason for that is we're then dedicating that provider towards that organization. Okay. And the only way for us to do that is for us to pay them. Right, so it's right. really insight into our business model. We're dedicating that provider towards the organization, which ensures you get the same provider at the same time every week. Mm-hmm. But then they are paying for that time. 
Okay. But that, that's inclusive of we cover the malpractice. Mm-hmm. We have the telehealth platform, so they can utilize that. We're not charging for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they want to utilize ePrescribe, we have a platform for that. So there's, again, no hidden costs, no deployment fee. It's really about that provider time that they're paying for. Wow. You got some other important credentials after your name. You uh, head up uh, compliance efforts and uh, compliance work for your company. Some people who are tuning in, they're involved with compliance, and I know that's a changing landscape, but from your vantage point, any insights or messaging about compliance uh, as it relates to telemedicine or kind of the broader uh, issues today? Yeah, it's, it's constantly evolving, so it's incumbent upon me adding up our compliance as an attorney to stay on top of this. So one of the things that's come out that's really exciting for everyone is that um, when when the president declared a state of national emergency around the opioid epidemic, there was then a push to have laws that would allow for telemedicine hmm. to be more prevalent, to allow to loosen the restrictions on prescribing of controlled substances through telemedicine. And what I hear across Indian country especially is a need for substance abuse therapy, substance okay. abuse programs like medication-assisted treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, with these laws that are soon going to be passed, this will allow for that. It will allow for someone to access a, uh, a clinician who could potentially prescribe, if that was the intent of the organization, Suboxone or other controlled substances that can help to treat uh, substance abuse issues. And so that's an exciting sort of development because it will allow for telemedicine to be more prevalent in these organizations. But it's really important to, to understand these rules and regulations, and they can differ by state. And so we're on top of that, but it's, uh, it's important for organizations to understand that there are restrictions on telemedicine and what can and can't be done. So we stay on top of that and try to help organizations understand those laws and those rules and regulations around, around telemedicine. Boy, I mean, this is uh, great. You're doing a lot of the legwork, a lot of the stuff behind the scenes, and basically a tribe or any other entity that feels they need those telehealth behavioral health services can just get on the phone and call regroup or go on the internet and do that. You know, we've been talking about your company for three segments now in the show, and we still haven't given out any way that someone could contact you or some other point person at your organization. How do they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, they can contact me directly. I mean, uh, so, uh, my email address is naveen at regrouptelehealth.com. And so that might, that's a great way uh, to contact me. I'm also accessible or we're accessible through the website at regrouptelehealth.com. Uh, so I'm happy to have conversations and really inform people of what's available to them because a lot of times it's really about folks understanding how they can incorporate this to help their organization, whether it's with Regroup or internally. Mm-hmm. So the thing you want to remember if you're listening in today to American Indian Living if you want to get a hold of Naveen or someone else with his team, it's regroup, R-E-G-R-O-U-P, telehealth.com. So regroup, tele, T-E-L-E, health.com. And if they can remember that uh, domain, that regroup, telehealth.com, then that's also the doorway for getting a hold of you if they can remember your first name, which is? Naveen, yes, so N-A-V-E-E-N. Okay, N-A-V-E-E-N, Naveen at regrouptelehealth.com. Now, believe it or not, we do get folks who listen to the show 
and they say, I mean, that was just a great show, but um, I don't have Internet access. Is it over for them? Is there any way to get a hold of you guys by phone? Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, my cell phone number, I can, I'm can. i happy to give that out. It's on my card, which you see. But uh, that number is 617-953-8452. That's 617-953-8452. Um, accessible anytime. Happy to chat. Yeah, one of the disadvantages of doing a radio show without having that, uh, you know, live streaming internet feed is you can't see the uh, the business card that Naveen has placed <laughs> in front of me, and it indeed does have his cell phone number. And if you didn't catch it when he uh, gave it uh, very clearly there a couple times, I'll give it to you one more time. Area code six one seven nine five three eight four five two. So really. Uh, I've been excited about what we've had to share, Naveen. Really, I think you're making an eloquent plea for people wherever they're at. If you're involved with delivering health services, whether it's in the heart of Indian country or somewhere else, you've got to give people good access to mental health services. And there's no excuse today, is there? No. I think uh, everyone's aware of it now, and now we just have to work on, on, on helping to improve access. Well, thanks for doing your part. That's uh, Naveen Kathuria with the Regroup team who are delivering telehealth, mental health services, behavioral health services throughout Indian country and beyond. We've got one more great segment coming up. Another guest will be joining us from the National Tribal Health Conference. You don't want to miss it. I'm Dr. DeRose. We'll be right back after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand, and someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. 
Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. We're in our final segment, the home stretch of today's program. I've got another great guest sitting across from me. His name is Jim Landelius. Jim, it's great to have you with us. It's good to be back. Jim, uh, definitely it is good to have you back because uh, for those who listen regularly, they've heard you, uh, especially when I'm on site because it seems like when there's a, a major Native conference, you are often there. We we do see each other a lot there. I've I've wondered, you know, well, you haven't invited me, but we're, we're back together, so it's all good. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, Jim, you are one of the people heading up a very, um, very unique booth area here at uh, the National Tribal Health Conference. In fact, I understand it was so unique that one of the organizers, one of the members of the National Indian Health Board, walked up to you at this very conference and mentioned your uniqueness. First of all, what is that? Well, we are offering health screening, uh, pulse oxygen, weight, body fat, blood pressure, and blood sugar. And in the future, we hope to offer cholesterol screening as well. And it was one of the organizers. She came up, and she said, it's really interesting. All Most everyone here is involved with, with tribal health, and you're a church. What are you doing here? And it, it kind of took me back for a minute. Uh-huh. It, it almost sounded, you know, like, but she, what she was wanting to know is, what is your mission? Why the interest? And so I just shared a little bit with her about, you know, what we're about, helping people live happier, healthier lives, um, especially with diabetes, which is so prevalent mm. in the tribes. And as, you know, health professionals know this, many tribal health leaders know this, but sometimes the information doesn't get down to the individual. And of every 10 or 12 people that came yesterday, there was only one who had their blood sugar in a uh, in what would most medical professionals would call a, a good range. Mm. And of those, fully half were like, what? They, they didn't realize. And so a little bit of education so they could go back to their tribal health leaders and get information that would help them. And so primarily we're just trying to help, you know, give people information so they can live happier, healthier lives. Now, let me see if I heard the statistic right, because I, I, I may be misunderstood. Are you saying that 9 out of 10 in that range had bad blood sugars, or, or 1 out of 10 had bad blood sugars? 1 out of 10 had a good blood sugar. So that means 9 out of 10 had a bad blood sugar. 9 out of 10. In, <clears throat> and and pro- perhaps many of your listeners are familiar with this, but you take two individuals, one Anglo, one Native American, exact same socioeconomic strata, uh, diet, everything, all things being equal, the Native American is, I think, two to three times at greater risk just simply because of, of genetics. Um, you know, with among the African-American population, sickle cell anemia is more prevalent. One of the things, because in the Western world, from, from my understanding, you know, things have shifted over a long period of time, mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of years you know, gone from, you know, the hunter-gatherer to settled to, you know, the, the horrible Western diet that we have. Okay. But because of uh, certain things we won't get too much into, 
the, the native diet has changed dramatically in the last 150, 180 years. And like you, you point out, you know, so eloquently uh, intimate that it was not by choice. Not by choice. Yes. So uh, so basically there's these external pressures that have forced changes on Native Americans. Their genetics seemed geared to do very well in traditional subsistence, living, sustainable agriculture, all these things. And then you start throwing all these junk foods into the equation, commodity foods on the reservations, and we've got a diabetes epidemic, right? Exactly. And we see it, and, and it's not just the native populations. If you look like in Japan, where until World War II, mm. it was much the same way. But afterwards, in the Western influence, and now they have diseases and things that they never had. So it's, once again, it's kind of the white man's fault. So you're providing a service. You're saying, we're here Let's see where you stand. Let's see where your blood pressure's at. Let's see where your blood sugars are at. And then people are asking questions because I'm looking right now. I mean, right where I sit, your booth is across from me. I mean, probably, what, 30 feet across from me there is a large uh, uh, aisle uh, between us. And then there's a kind of entryway right to our right. There's uh, prominent sponsors, the bare level sponsors for this group, and then there's wolf sponsors, deer sponsors, otter sponsors, but the bear sponsors, the top tier there, we've got uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Oklahoma, and we've got the Seventh-day Adventist Church, as well as the, is that the uh, Muscogee Creek tribe up there? It is. Okay. So basically, those are the bare level sponsors, and, and like you said, there's this unusual thing. There's no church groups here except the Seventh-day Adventist Church, who you represent. You're actually a pastor here in Oklahoma. I am. Even though you travel throughout the country doing these health screening events for representing the church. Correct. So I noticed something. Walked over to your, your booth. You've got a little booklet there that some people are picking up. It says, who are the Seventh-day Adventists? So I've noticed people are asking that question, what are you doing with screenings? Why are you here? You're here to help communities. What does this little book tell people? What this little book does is it just kind of gives people a, a little bit better idea of exactly who we are. And one of the interesting things is often we are mistaken for our friends, the Latter-day Saints, hmm. uh, because their initials LDS, ours are SDA, so there's some similarities. Okay, okay. So it's just kind of pointing out this is who we are, um, what our history is, the, some of the things that we believe. Mm -hmm. uh, some people, you know, they may have one or two things, and they may have some uh, incorrect you know, ideas of, of what we what we believe, what our people are like, and not that, uh, you know. There, of course, there's a wide range. Sure. You know, just as in in every people group, and what our mission is, and this is to me the big thing. What is our mission? And that is sharing the gospel. Of course, I mean we're a, we're a faith based organization, but it's about reaching out, working in the community, helping people live happier, healthier lives. When Christ walked this earth, most of his ministry was spent in feeding people and healing people. Mm. He did a little bit of preaching. But when you're sick and hurting, you can't hear any message. Interesting. And so if people have more questions after they feel better, wonderful. That's great. If not, that's fine. We just want to serve our communities and make a difference. I mean, I appreciate that spirit. And in the spirit of full disclosure, uh, I never heard of Seventh-day Adventist growing up. And I would have appreciated perhaps a booklet like this, Who Are the Seventh-day Adventists? looks like a you know, short, easy read, what, uh, 64 pages. But um, I learned about Seventh-day Adventists when I was in college. I, like I said, we don't want uh, 
anyone uh, guessing here, I am a Seventh-day Adventist now. I've joined that church some years ago. One of the things that has inspired me over the years about the church is this emphasis on health and uh, making people healthier, bringing health to communities. And I've been excited to really be more connected with Indian country as a result of a Native American Seventh-day Adventist, a guy by the name of Bob Burnett. Some people have heard Bob on the show before, but Bob was the one who had the vision 15, 20 years ago to develop something that he and some other uh, First Nation peoples called American Indian Living. And he invited me to host the radio show. This was probably 15 years ago. He invites people at major meetings like this to do screenings and just give back to Indian country. So it's been a privilege for me to be involved, and it's good to see people like you, Jim, who are making a difference at venues like this. Some people, they hear us talking about this booklet. I'm wondering if uh, someone wanted a copy of Who Are the Seventh-day Adventists, would you be willing to send it to them free of charge? Absolutely. So how do they get a hold of you? All they have to do is uh, send me an email. Send me a, a mailing address, and I will get that out as quickly as possible. And uh, the email address to use for you is? OKNativeMinistries at gmail.com. So OK like Oklahoma. Oklahoma, yes, so, sir. So OKNativeMinistries at gmail.com. That's it. And I can get a free copy of Who Are the Seventh-day Adventists? Absolutely. Well, I'm not going to get one because you're giving me one now, right? You've got one right in your hand. Okay, so, so thank you so much. And uh, if uh, you're also trying to get a copy of American Indian Living magazine, now I know you've got a website for the magazine and the radio show, but people can read the magazine online, right? They can. AmericanIndianLiving.org. All of our previous magazines are, uh, are archived. You can click and read every copy. There's also, our, as our new issues are printed, they go on. And, of course, if you'd like a, a print copy, if you have a tribal office, a medical facility, and you would like to you know, offer magazines to your patrons, again, send me an email. Uh, I'm in charge of circulation. I will get that to the publisher, and we'll make sure you get uh, however many copies you would like. Just we need a shipping address not a mailing address we use ups okay so if you're not familiar with american indian living the magazine some of you are worried now you've heard it's a seventh-day adventist or behind it but this is uh, something that is uh, not written from any uh, single spiritual perspective it's a joint partnership between the seventh-day adventist church and the national congress of american indians so this is a vetted magazine right yes um a good percentage of our content comes from the national congress Okay, well, our time has slipped away from us, but Jim, it's always great to have you with us. If you want to get a hold of uh, Jim Landelius, oknativeministries at gmail.com. Well, that's all for today's show. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Thanks for joining us, and as always, I'm wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.